Hi, how are you doing? I'm walking past the village tennis court. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm walking past the village tennis courts on my way to the recreation meadow where I plan to visit some neighbours. It's early evening. The sun is quite low and golden. It's been a beautiful day and it's going to be a lovely evening. My name's Melissa Harrison, and I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. From now through spring and summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 12 of The Stop and Light of Things. to the far corner of the recreation ground where the land rises slightly and it's pocked with rabbit holes. This is one of the village's warrens. There's several around here. And I've had a look and there are 15 burrows that look like they're in use and several more holes that um, have got dead leaves and vegetation blown into them don't look like anyone's using them. So right under my feet at the moment as I walk along there are rabbits sheltering with their ears back and their eyes wide and listening to me walking over their heads. We have very sandy soil here and around the mouths of the burrows, it just looks like beach sand. It's bright yellow. You could almost think that a, a digger had dumped a load of builder's sand here. And it's covered in little footprints. And there are mounds of round rabbit droppings. And further off in the grass, there are lots of little shallow scrapes where they've been digging for tasty morsels and sometimes just enjoying the pleasure of digging because their instinct to dig is so strong. The network of tunnels under my feet now could be really quite extensive. They don't really dig chambers so much as a network of tunnels with wider areas where somebody might sleep or give birth or get away from the others or whatever. But there'll be a deep 
part, which is the best part of the warren, and that's where the dominant female, the doe, and the dominant buck um, will live. They'll get the best spots, the safest, warmest, least liable to flooding or collapse. Sometimes um, you can find interesting things that have been dug up from underground around rabbit warrens. I know somebody that found two flint arrowheads that way. I've never been so lucky. But I love to find um, rabbit warrens and badger sets and fox dens, rookeries, things like that. When I, whenever I've moved anywhere, that's been one of the first things I've wanted to know. Where, where are, where's the community of, of animals? Where's the, the non-human inhabitants of the village? Because a village is a community of wildlife and people to me. And lots of our village names um, bear witness to a really long relationship with the natural world. Um, anywhere with Brock in its name um, will have been named after a badger set because we know that many sets in this country go back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, anywhere with Coney or Warren in um, will be related to usually commercial um, rabbit farming. So when I first moved here, I did a lot of exploratory walks, trying to work out where everyone lived. In a minute, I'm going to retire to a safer distance and uh, sit with my binoculars and wait for the rabbits to come out for their evening feeding time. My guest this week is the writer and journalist Ben Hoare, who has as his bio Nature Nerd, which I rather like because um, my Twitter bio is Nature Geek. He's the author of several best-selling books for children. Um, one of his most recent uh, was The Wonders of Nature, which came out in 2019. And his new one is Wild City, Meet the Animals Who Share Our City Spaces, and that's coming out in October. He sent us this piece from the Quantox, and when I heard it, it sounded so familiar to me. And I realised he lives just up the road from my friend Saskia, whose house I've visited more than once. I'm about 10 minutes from my front door and I've popped out before breakfast while the family are still asleep. Home for me is a thankful village. Such a lovely phrase. It means everyone who went to fight in the First World War came back. We moved to the valley 11 years ago. My other half saw our house on right move and we upped sticks. Big change overnight. Like any new relationship, it's a while before you start calling your new house home. So this is um, a steep-sided valley, or coombe. You won't get a mobile signal here. I've come to the top end of the village, where the lane peters out. You carry on along a muddy bridleway. Either side, there's a mossy bank with an ancient hedge, and when you look up, the greenery meets over your head. It's like walking down a cool green tunnel. I love the way these old lanes just sink into the land. And the part I'm walking down now runs beside a brook, 
often stream and lane are one and the same. Water and people, both going where they want to. Red deer use this route too, and otters. I found their spraint on rocks. Locals call this place Watery Lane, but you won't find that name on a map. Despite the rain we've had this week, there's actually much less water around than usual, so it's quite dry at the moment. There are about 40 people in the village now, but once there was a lot more. There was hazel coppicing, charcoal burning, stone quarrying, lime burning, fields of sheep, people growing potatoes, tending orchards, gathering firewood, making things, collecting bracken as bedding. Maybe I'm being romantic, but in lockdown I think I feel closer to them. My horizons have narrowed. Right, I've come a bit further up the valley, off-piste, up a hillside. I did a lot of walking my first year here, as the valley and I got to know each other. You can buy or rent a house or flat, but home isn't that. Home is a place. And people. There's a lot of anger in the world, and I have that in me too my own and I feel it on behalf of others but coming here is a good place to calm down just for a while. The farmer Janet White lets me wander her land. She's written a wonderful memoir, The Sheepstell. She's 90 but still rides the quad bike. She goes past our house every day at about 10.30. All Janet's fields have names and at the moment I'm sitting near one called Longbreach. It's a lovely sheltered spot. It's a brackeny hollow called Fox's Bottom. No idea why. It would be a great place to meet the secret lover. And that beautiful cascading song, that's a willow warbler, which tells you I've moved up the hill into this more scrubby woodland birch and hawthorn, which is what the willow warbler likes. Beautiful. There's another reason I wanted to bring you here. Coleridge and Wordsworth lived nearby for a while. The pair used to roam about on long walks. Coleridge was sometimes off his head. They say this valley inspired his poems and he wanted to move here. I've no idea if that's true. But it's possible, just possible, that he sat down where I am now. I've walked a little way across the recreation meadow. And hundreds of tiny grasshoppers are exploding from my feet as I walked. I'm now sitting cross-legged maybe 50 or 60 metres away from the warren and I'm making sure that the wind is carrying my scent away and not towards them. I said before that villages are communities of wildlife as well as people 
and that's an idea that I find really moving. One of the things I'm driven to write about again and again is old farms and old villages and settlements. I always found it extraordinary when we used to go to Dartmoor as children to find these um, ancient stone buildings, longhouses, some of which are mentioned in the Doomsday Book. And they would have housed people and cattle in the same building. They'd be built on a slight slope so that the muck and urine from the cattle could be washed down away from the human part of the house and out. And they'd be tucked in a little fold of land out of the worst of the wind and the weather. And they're still there and they're still inhabited. When I first started writing, I used to go and stay in the Blackdown Hills. And I rented a tiny little cottage on the side of a valley. And you could go on a walk along the side of the valley. And if you went at dusk, you could see a line of lights on the opposite side. And that line showed where all of the farms and the settlements were. And they were in a line because they were on the spring line. They were where you could get water. I love the pattern that you find in rural areas. When you come to a village, you know it'll have an old manor house that might or might not be occupied anymore. There'll be a church, a pub, which may or may not be a pub anymore. You might find the old Ties Barn, Georgian Rectory, a smithy, or farrier. You can look for the windmills, or the watermill, and the other rural trades that you'd find in a village, and you can find that pattern replicated again and again. And in Suffolk, it's even more... Um, repeated, you find the same place names and street names in almost every village. There'll be a low road, there'll be a hall road, there'll be the street, which in my last village was three houses that didn't even have a road outside of them. There'll be a poplar farm, there'll be a white house farm, a moat farm, a hall farm. Again and again and again the same pattern. I find something really comforting in that. And I'm sitting watching this warren, which is still devoid of rabbits, or visible rabbits. I'm wondering how long it's been there. How many generations of rabbits have dug into that sandy soil and lived and died there? And for how many of them, this is their world? This recreation meadow and the arable field on the other side of it a little scrap of wood. I haven't been travelling far, of course. I've been on foot and not much else for the last, well, since the beginning of March. But for many people, for many centuries, a village was home and it was self-sufficient, that's all you needed, and lots of people lived and died 
without even seeing the next valley, let alone a city or the sea. I've been writing a nature notebook in the Times for several years now, and in November my columns will be collected together and published by Faber as The Stubborn Light of Things. This is an extract from my column for June 2018. When I'm in the countryside, London seems unimaginable. Its noise and fumes, its hardness and unrelenting pace. But when I'm working in London, it's Suffolk's lushness I can't picture. Waiting for a bus on the busy Hackney Road, the village I spend most of the month in seems an entirely impossible place. Yet spring has transformed both places so thoroughly that now it's winter that seems the greatest improbability of all. In town, I watched as one little London park became a mass of bird cherry blossom, the trees fragrant, creamy white racemes turning each tarmac path into a bridal aisle for commuters and a banquet for pollinators, drifts of petals collecting in the grimy gutters like snow. As I passed through every morning, there came the spring carolling of blackbirds from the trees, just as my Suffolk blackbird was probably singing from the clay pantiles of the little rented cottage I'd left behind. Trees and birds, blossom and bees, spring exerts its generative pull on all the natural world, regardless of town or countryside. There were great tits calling insistently on Pentelville Road and pied wagtails flirting their tails on the sun-warmed slate roofs of Islington office blocks. One morning during rush hour, not far from BBC Broadcasting House, I heard a robin spilling out its bright lament. And everywhere weeds and wildflowers were making a dash for it, greening pavement cracks and crevices, crowding around the roots of street trees, and shooting up on scrappy verges, reaching for the sun. If you live and work in a city, it's easy to miss spring. The sun shines more reliably and the temperatures rise, but the lushness and growth, the sense of it as a period of mad, unfettered reproduction, can pass you by. It's everywhere, though, if you can only tune into its frequency. Even above the steel and glass towers of Old Street Roundabout reel the migratory swifts. one that's clearly a lookout, sitting up, 
very alert, ears up. The others are feeding. One of the kids is washing its face. They are such lovely little animals. This recreation meadow is where the village fete was held last year. And I came to it even though I didn't yet live in the village. I was in the process of buying the house and it was fantastic. It was quite windy, so not all of the marquees had been erected, but there was music and bric-a-brac and lovely old farm machinery. And there was a fun dog show, which was won by my friend's German shorthead pointer. And I remember sitting where I'm sitting now on the grass, looking around at all the people and thinking, maybe this time next year, at next year's fate, I'll know all these people and I'll belong. But of course, there hasn't been a fate this year. So is this home yet? thing is, I'm not a very deep-rooted person anyway. I'd love to be. I'm fascinated by places where the same family has lived for generations. But I grew up in Surrey, which was somewhere neither of my parents had any connection to. My mum was born in India, well, it's now Pakistan, and dad was from Oxford. I've always felt a little bit on the edges of things despite longing to belong. I actually think the edges of things are where I'm most comfortable. And I think that's true of a lot of writers. There's a rabbit just running away from me, showing its little white bum, or flash of its scut. It's going back in the hole. I'm wary of belonging a bit. I'm wary of clubs and groups, gangs, tribes, sides in-groups and out-groups. But that's what home is about, isn't it? Whether it's a family or a village or even an online community, friendship group, it defines itself against outsiders. You can't have people that belong unless you have people who don't. And it's the same with wildlife. We talk about native and non-native species. And rightly so in a lot of cases because we need the wildlife that's here because it's all evolved together over millennia. So there are lots of complex interdependencies. That's why a native tree like an ash or an oak can support so much more wildlife than a non-native tree. But it leads us into some dark places too. I remember last year when there was a lot of discussion about whether myxomatosis might have jumped the species barrier from rabbits to hares. I saw a, a naturalist on Twitter who was saying, I don't know what people are so worried about anyway, hares are non-native. Which completely dismissed not only the individual suffering of all the animals, but our relationship with an animal that has lived here in a perfect little ecological niche for over 2,000 years and which is beloved and we've got huge amounts of folklore and meaning connected to it. 
Gilbert White's home, The Wakes, in Selborne, is kept almost exactly as it was when he was alive. And you can visit and see the orchard and the kitchen garden, the sundial, the meadow, his six large flower beds that he called the quarters with grass walks in between where Timothy the tortoise ate the grass. You can see the ha-ha and the fruit wall where he grew peaches and nectarines. You can see the great oak and the hotbed where he grew melons, cutting beds for all his flowers. And he was born there. Originally it was quite a small building he added to it in the 1760s. But he grew up there with his parents, his grandmother and nine siblings. So it must have been quite a crowded home. And he's famous, of course, for studying animals in their home environments. Instead of as stuffed specimens. It seems obvious now, but it was revolutionary then. Here are his diary entries for today, June the 22nd. June the 22nd, 1775. Teals breed in Woolmer Forest. Jack Snipes breed there also, no doubt, since they are to be found there the summer through. A person assures me that Mr Maymot, an old clergyman at North Capel in Sussex, kept a cuckoo in a cage three or four years and that he had seen it several times both winter and summer. It made a little jarring noise, but never cried cuckoo. It might perhaps have been a hen. He did not remember how it subsided. June the 22nd, 1777. Swallows are hawking after food for their young till near nine o'clock. They take true pains to support their family. June the 22nd, 1779. Farmer Turner housed his hay. It should, I think, have lain a day longer. June the 22nd, 1785. Turbid sunset. The disk of the sun looked like three suns. Full moon. June the 22nd, 1788. My flycatchers left the nest this day. June the 22nd, 1790. Fruit walls in the sun are so hot that I cannot bear my hand on them. Brother Thomas's thermometer was 89 on an east wall in the afternoon. My thermometer after the sun was got round upon it was 100. Thomas forgot to look in time. Much damage done and some persons killed by lightning on this sultry day. There's about a dozen or so rabbits out now. I've moved a bit further away. There's a little um, sports pavilion in the corner of the meadow. So I'm sitting in there now and looking through my binoculars. It's lovely to see them lit up by the low sun. There's been some playing. There's been some running around for no reason. There's been some kicking and lots of scratching and some mutual grooming. You 
can't help but smile watching them. There's only two mentions of rabbits in all of Gilbert White's writings, which tells us that there really weren't many rabbits around Selborne at that time. There's no Anglo-Saxon or Celtic word for rabbit because they were a Norman introduction. There's no mention of them at all in the Doomsday Book, which is 1086, and which detailed everything that could be eaten or farmed or made money from. Through the Middle Ages, they were kept and farmed as livestock, um, like any other farm animal. And really it was the end of the 18th century when wild populations began to be established, particularly in East Anglia, where, where I am now, because the soil is in swathes of East Anglia is very sandy and that's great for rabbits. And then 100 years after that, there were so many that they began to be seen as pests. So we did what we often do with pests. We tried to exterminate them. And in 1954, we introduced myxomatosis, which is carried by fleas. And a population of about 100 million fell to about a million. It is a horrible death. Mixy. If you've ever seen a mixy rabbit, it is deeply distressing. But their populations did eventually start to recover. Some developed some immunity. Some began to live above ground a bit more, where um, fleas weren't so much of a, a bother. And now the population's recovered to about 38 million. Foxgloves are out around the edges of the meadow, ivory and pink, and there's lots of fresh new growth in the grass because we had rain this week, the rabbits will be really enjoying that. If they're not disturbed, they'll stay out feeding all night. They're crepuscular, (laughs) I'll try that again, they're crepuscular, which means that they come out in the half-light dusk and dawn but they're perfectly capable of feeding all night this week's poem is by Alison Brackenbury who's a great friend of this podcast in fact its title came from her poem Brockenhurst and Brockenhurst in the New Forest is named for a badger set this poem is from her collection Then which came out in 2013, published by Carcanet. Late at Long Eaton How views from idling trains show lives in cuttings Where long gardens wind down to the rails or dark canals There each home's narrow kingdom tells What is most loved? A trampoline lifts children where all trees have been ruthlessly felled. A table stands with kissing chairs for late-night friends. You urge me, love the human race. But leave 
past rail and bank, a space where I may let rich ivies run. Flowered nettles, lemon trails, breathe sun. Young robins flit, the sharp wrens cry. The speckled woods, new hatched wings dry, which tremble, taste the wide air, fly.